Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Vision Correction, Jesus Heals the Man Born Blind. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 30th, 2014, the fourth Sunday in Lent. What do you see? One vase or two faces? That's the interesting optical illusion made famous by the Danish psychologist Edgar Rubin. When shown a simple picture, some people see a white vase on a black background. Other people see two black faces on a white black background. And notice, what you see doesn't depend on the image. You can actually choose to see the other image by reversing the object in the foreground and its background. How the brain processes vision is dynamic and malleable. Different people see different things when looking at the same object. In two of the readings this week, we're challenged to see the world like God sees it. To see things like God does, rather than rather than the way the world does, is an essential part of being God people in the world. You might say that we want to be careful not to get the vase and the face mixed up. The street lawyer William Stringfellow once said that he wanted to see America biblically, rather than to see the Bible Americanly. Similarly, we want to see the world from God's perspective, rather than to view God from the world's perspective. This sounds well and good, but to see like God does encounters the two dangers of audacity and futility. Who in their right mind would be so rash to claim to share God's perspective? And conversely, who isn't aware of how many ways our perspectives are shaped, limited, and compromised? In fact, the Gospel from John 9 for this week suggests a counterintuitive way beyond these obstacles. To see like God does requires radical vision correction, for God doesn't look at the world like we do. Samuel anointed David as Israel's new king only after looking at his seven brawny brothers and hearing God dismiss each and every one of them. This is not the one. And then the conclusion. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David was the youngest and most unlikely political prospect, but God chose him. And so we read, From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. John's Gospel this week concludes with a punchline that's enigmatic and disturbing. Jesus says, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. When some Pharisees asked if they were blind, Jesus responded, 
If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. Physical blindness is bad enough. The spiritual claim to see is far more dangerous, for it masks a blindness to the need for corrective vision. One of the most dangerous spiritual places we can live is in the deluded notion that we are fully sighted, spiritually speaking. And conversely, the healthiest place to live is not only to acknowledge our spiritual blindness, but also to recognize that as an acceptable place to live. In acknowledging our blindness, we live in the light. By believing that we fully and see fully and rightly, we stumble in the darkness. Acknowledging our spiritual blindness can be embarrassing and threatening. After all, people want answers, clear and concise. We know from experience and from the disciples and the clerics in John chapter 9 how cruel and condescending, how derogatory and dismissive people can be towards the blind. Many people said that the man's blindness was God's punishment. Healthy people befriend their blindness and make their peace with it. Spiritually sighted people recognize that acknowledging their blindness is an act of liberation, not a confession of bondage. The journey toward the light begins when we acknowledge our darkness. In her essay on the transfiguration of Jesus, Amy Frickholm considers our own transfiguration. She observes how difficult it is to see the world in ourselves like God does. Old habits die hard. Our field of vision is habituated by past choices. Frickholm draws on Annie Dillard's essay called Seeing, in which Dillard describes a person born blind whose sight was restored through surgery. A healing, perhaps, not unlike this week's gospel. But seeing the world with new vision was far harder than you might think. Frickholm writes, The person had to reconcile preconceived notions of the world with objects, colors, and distances. Much of what she saw simply felt wrong. A newly sighted person can easily get the meanings wrong, even though she has a radical new gift. This suggests a spiritual kind of sight as well as a physical, that a person having received a radical new gift might struggle to understand precisely how to use it. Jesus calls himself the light of the world in John 9, 5. In his prologue, John uses this image of light seven times. And in the epistle for this week, Paul urges the Ephesians to live in the light and to repudiate deeds of darkness. Jesus enlightens our darkness and heals our blindness. But in so doing, he is also the great divider. We read again, For judgment I have come into this world, 
so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of your sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Acknowledging our darkness is good and necessary, but longing for the light carries its own unique risks and rewards. For books this week, I review a new volume of poetry by Alice Walker. The title is called The World Will Follow Joy, Turning Madness into Flowers. New York, The New Press, 2013, 191 pages. Alice Walker, born in 1944, is best known for her 1982 novel, The Color Purple, which won the Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award, and was adapted into a movie and Broadway musical of the same name. In fact, Alice Walker started writing when she was eight years old. She's been a prolific author with over 30 books and a tireless activist for global human rights. Raised in Jim Crow, Georgia, her mother was a maid and her father a sharecropper. After a year at Spelman College, where Howard Zinn was one of her professors, Walker transferred to Sarah Lawrence College. Like most of her life and work, these 60 poems are meant to provoke the reader's activism. The poems were written between October 2009 and August 2011. They reflect the unusual mix of her life that includes the rich and famous, along with the poor and anonymous. There are poems here about the Dalai Lama, Jimmy Carter, Yoko Ono, Gloria Steinman, Oprah, and Cornel West, but also about African orphans, mothers in Gaza, martyrs for Egypt's democracy movement, experiences in the Himalayas, and what it's like to grow old. If there's a single poem that captures the spirit of the book, Perhaps it's the one called Every Revolution Needs Fresh Poems. Listen to the poem. Every revolution needs fresh poems. That is the reason poetry cannot die. It is the reason poets go without sleep and sometimes without lovers, without new cars and without fine clothes the reason we commit to facing the dark and resign ourselves regularly to the possibility of being wrong. Poetry is leading us. It never cares how we will be held by lovers or drive fast or look good in the moment, but about how completely we are committed to movement, both inner and outer, and devoted to transformation and to change. In other words, if we hope to turn madness into flowers, according to the title of the book, our human compassion 
must include political commitment. Poets like Walker help us to do that. For more on Alice Walker, see the documentary film called Alice Walker, Beauty in Truth, 2013, which first aired on the BBC in July of 2013. For film this week, I review a Coen Brothers movie called Inside Lewin Davis from 2013. What's Inside Lewin Davis, a Jew with a Welsh name? Not much, and very little that's good. He's a melancholic, starving artist of a folk singer in 1961 Greenwich Village. He's a bum and a chronic couch surfer. He offends his hosts and loses a cat. His records don't sell. When he goes to Chicago and auditions, the producer concludes, I don't see any money here. He decides to give up folk music and return to the Merchant Marines, but he even fails at that. In one scene, having offended his sister, he tells his nephew, Danny, your uncle is a bad person. He's right. The Coen brothers love to explore losers, and the protagonist in this film is no exception. The winter sky and horrible weather set the scene. Why does fate treat people so differently? To punctuate this point, in the final scene, Yet another starving artist takes the stage and starts to croon. An unknown and undiscovered Bob Dylan. Inside Lewin Davis by the Coen Brothers. And finally, for poetry, we've posted a poem by one of my favorite poets, Edwina Gately. The title of the poem is called, is called To Say Yes. It's from her book, There Was No Path, So I Trod One. Edwina Gately, Called to Say Yes. We are called to say yes, that the kingdom might break through to renew and to transform our dark and groping world. We stutter and we stammer to the lone God who calls and pleads a new Jerusalem in the bloodied Sinai Straits. We are called to say yes, that honeysuckle may twine and twist its smelling leaves over the graves of nuclear arms. We are called to say yes, that children might play on the soil of Vietnam where the tanks belched blood and death. We are called to say yes, that black may sing with white and pledge peace and healing for the hatred of the past. We are called to say yes, so that nations might gather and dance one great movement for the joy of humankind. We are called to say yes, so that rich and poor embrace 
and become equal in their poverty through the silent tears that fall. We are called to say yes, that the whisper of our God might be heard through our sirens in the screams of our bombs. We are called to say yes to a God who still holds fast to the vision of the kingdom for a trembling world of pain. We are called to say yes to this God who reaches out and asks us to share his crazy dream of love. Called to Say Yes by Edwina Gately. It's from her book, There Was No Path, So I Trod One. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 30th, 2014, the fourth Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.